This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined in the virtual studio tonight by Senior Lecturer at the University of South Australia, Dr Stuart Richards. Hey, Stewie. Hi, thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure and happy Radiothon. Thank you so much. Uh, we are. We will be reading out some names later, so do uh, subscribe, donate, uh, re- renew your subscription, and we will read out your name on live on air. Uh, and on tonight's show, we're going to hear about Stewie's upcoming book on screen adaptations of Agatha Christie's work and its intersection with gothic horror. And later tonight, we'll review the latest Agatha Christie screen adaptation, A Haunting in Venice, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Uh, but first, the St. Ali Italian Film Festival is kicking off this Thursday, uh, one of the many films being showcased. Uh, at the uh, Sorry, one of the show films being showcased at the festival. Um And it is the winner of the jury prize at last year's Cannes Film Festival, The Eight Mountains. Uh, It is a journey of friendship and self-discovery set in the breathtaking Italian Alps. So we'll talk uh, in just one moment. Um, You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Issue 93 of Green Magazine is on sale now. The September issue includes the annual Small Spaces feature with five houses demonstrating clever design and energy efficiency, plus innovative product design, permaculture tips, profiles and much more. Subscriptions are available and can be gifted to friends. Find Green Magazine in Newsagent or for more info, head to greenmagazine.com.au. Triple R sponsors. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick and Stewie. Uh, And hopefully um, we are now joined by the co-writer and co-director of The Eight Mountains. Um, Hello, Charlotte Vondermish. 
Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> so uh, your film, The Eight Mountains, it tells the story of a friendship between city boy Pietro and Bruno, the last child of a forgotten mountain village. It captures the different seasons of friendship over a lifetime of knowing someone. Um, now, The Eight Mountains is an adaptation of uh, Paolo Cognetti's novel of the same name and you co-directed the film with your partner Felix van Groningen um, and I understand you started working on this project during the first COVID lockdown. It's so impressive that you were able to adapt such an expansive story during a time in which our lives became so narrowed. Um, talk us through what that writing process was like. Well, we were planning to start writing um, end of February of 2020, which we all know, you know, <laughs> ended up being a, a very, uh, yeah, locked up kind of writing process, you know, just us together in our uh, little, uh, you know, apartment with our son. Um, and working on this project was actually very liberating because it's um you know it's set in the italian alps it's set uh often on mountain peaks high mountain sides um and it breathes uh so much air in that way it really as you know the rest of the world we longed for the outdoors and we longed to uh to to break out of our city um yeah like the, the, the city confinement and it, it was just um it was wonderful to first start writing on this story and just, you know, being out there in nature, high up um, in our minds. And after that, we, of course, you know, COVID lasted for a while. So we had the opportunity working on this project to already, you know, have the permission to travel to the Alps and go make those walks while, yeah, the rest of us were still stuck. So we were very fortunate to make this wonderful project during this time. Well, the, the title of the film, it's a reference, of course, to the, the eight highest peaks of Nepal. And you, you shot the film in the Italian alpine valley of um, Aosta. Uh, the location mm -hmm. of this film, it's so much more than just a backdrop. Um, I'd love to know uh, more about how you connected with the land and the culture and the history of this place. Yeah, of course, this was essential uh, for the film. Um, it was essential to grasp um, the, the character of the, the place, the places, the, the people, the language. And that was a large, uh, how do you, a big leap to take because we're just Belgians and we don't have mountains and we're not very big mountain people or we weren't. Now we are more, you know, we love them. Um, but um, I have to say... Uh, the writer, Paolo Cognetti, he was really our guide. He was um, he was wonderful during the process. He opened up his world to us. Um, we went there often. He would invite us to go on walks so he could show us the places that inspired him. He would have us meet uh, his friends, the people who inspired um, the, the characters. Um, yeah, he would just really be there for us then we started learning italian he would also be our guide through like we would make the adaptation freely like he would not be pushy in any you know in any way and but we would then if we would have a, a version of the script check it with him like 
for just for authenticity in language, but also in how do people interact and and what do you think of this and that and that. And he never pushed his opinion. We we were very free, uh, but we were we were very grateful for that. And of course, we went often to Italy. We talked to a lot of people. We got to know uh, mountain guides and farmers and and. Uh, um, and also more city people, and and of course through our actors, they were also very important to. Um, they did a good job getting to know because they all came from Rome or you know more not from the mountains themselves, except some 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 real um, some real mountain people uh, who we, who actually did not have any acting experience, and they were like Aunt Sonia, and you know you have some people who are just really from there. But it was a mix of. Uh, also, our little Bruno, for instance, the the mountain boy. He was a real mountain boy, growing up with cows, making cheese, um, living this way in uh, the Alpeggio way, right? That in summer you go up with the cows, and then you go higher up so they can eat the freshest grass, and they have beautiful milk, and they have great cheese coming <laughs> from them. So it's this special process. So um, we had a mix of very beautiful people making this project uh, without any acting experience, with acting experience, a lot of them, a lot of it, and just everyone sharing their experience. Mm. I love that you've you both learnt Italian in order to make this film. That is going um, the extra mile for for sure. I um I read that one of your aims in making this film was to create an epic film told in tiny gestures. You have Luca Marinelli as Pietro and Alessandro Borgi as Bruno, along with all the other younger actors who are playing these roles. Um, it mm. seems like so much is being communicated in the nonverbal space. How did you work with the cast to give weight to these tiny gestures? Um when we answered this question once with uh together with alessandra and luca uh, they said actually we it was all there in the script that was their answer so we made a very deep that's the first thing we made a very detailed script often we would give dialogues a lot of space just put silence in between silence not explaining them not saying oh uh, you know sometimes you describe something but you can have these very these scripts that really describe every action we would just say they're silence you know <laughs> and you would feel uh, when you read it you could already you get a hunch of what what's going on there and then um and then casting is super important for the two friends so we have the adults of course um being the protagonists but then the younger kids playing them as 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 young boys the the silence between them already had to have a a kind of complicity, something that they understand from the other without having to explain themselves. And so that's a big process. That took like six months of, of, of looking for the right people, right kids, because, you know, Pietro was more of a, a nerd on paper and, and Bruno was just more like a wild kid, which he is, but he has a poetry. Mm -hmm. And Pietro, the, the nerd, has a wild side, and he doesn't really know how to, you know, he lives in the city. It's it's a small apartment. There's not much space to to, to, to play outside, you know. So his, his wild child is locked in. And so they find each other somewhere in something that they don't have the space to develop mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the where they grow up. So 
we were looking for that. And it, it's not the obvious casting that helps then. Actually, you go opposite. Mm. <laughs> we took a, a wild child and he became Pietro. <laughs> and that works. And then you, you make him shut up. You know, he has to like um, keep all, that all inside. And that works really well, for instance. Mm. Well, there, there is honestly so much, um, there's so much honesty in, in the portrayal of the friendship at the centre of the Eight Mountains. Uh, Felix, uh, your partner and the co-director, co-writer, described your DOP, uh, Ruben uh, Impens, and your editor, Nico Leonian, as like parts of his body, his brain. And I understand that much of the friendship of Bruno and Pietro, um, much like that that friendship, um Felix has also uh, known these two since he was a child. How much uh, did your own relationships and friendships uh, lend themselves to the story? Um, yeah, that's that's funny. I, I I wondered about that too, um, because I never really, I never really literally thought about my own friendships specifically although i think it's i mean what's wonderful about this friendship is that it's it's a tender male friendship uh so it doesn't it doesn't feel so masculine or or it just just feels universal for me but i have to admit that women talk more i mean men when they don't know what to say they go for walks and then they say oh look uh there's a trace of a fox and I don't know, <laughs> and then somehow staring at a mountaintop, they communicate stuff. That's at least how how we observe Paolo and his mountain friends, you know, communicate. They don't often literally do it. They just, they, they go walking, they breathe together, they share the experience. Whereas girls, you know, we like to sit down and have coffee and talk about our lives and everything. And, and that's a bit different, but I, um, huh. What I think, what I think was is beautiful in this friendship also is they they try to leave space for the other, and at the same time show their love. Mm. And so, like, I'll be, I'm here for you, but I can't be there always because you know I'm I'm I'm, I'm I have I have my own life. I mm. I'm working here in this city, or you're having a baby there with this person. Beautiful, I support mm. that, but that doesn't. So the the drama of of great friendship can also be that you don't really live your lives together. Mm. You, the love can be as intense as a with a, a you know the lover with a you know with a, a sexual partner a love partner. How do you say that? Like, yeah, yeah, lover. Um, yeah, right. But it it can be as beautiful as intense. But you're not gonna really live together probably. Mm. And well, maybe some people do, and that's a beautiful new form of living together. But it's not a traditional way, let's say. And so it's often hard that you always have to say goodbye. Mm. And then when you meet each other again, sometimes a year has passed or five months, or, you know, you don't see each other every week. You just, mm. and, and it's the same as when you last said bye. It's immediately the same, oh, I'm feeling so, you know, familiar with you. I don't have to explain myself and we can just take time. And, and it's so... That's the tragedy of, 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 of intense friendship, I guess. There's much more saying goodbye <laughs> in, in the, in the, in, and that's also accepting the, the choices of the other mm. and trying to, to, to support the other person, although you might sometimes have opinions about mm. what they choose to do, you know. 
but you know, yeah, you have to accept. You can maybe try to give some advice, but you can't push anybody. So this balance of how to live your life closely to someone when we're all evolving so much yeah that's beautiful i think and i have that in my life like okay am i gonna tell her that i really think this is a bad choice or or shouldn't i get or i shouldn't get involved or you know that's difficult sometimes it's lovely to hear you talk about friendship in that way because i feel like it's one of the one of the most important things in our lives but it's so rarely captured or focused on as the main relationship in film you know so often cinema focuses on the romantic entanglement not on friendships which do fill our lives with so much richness and there's like you say there is a sadness there of um maybe not having you know when you have friends you're not set up in that same social structure as you would in a romantic relationship you do have to say yeah. goodbye all the time and it, it is really beautiful seeing that on screen and I think there is something special about the boys friendship as they turn into men as well and and kind of that the the memories of their fathers as well this film explores so much it really is the epic that you set out to make um oh that's lovely to hear thanks and, I mean, notably, it has, um, as I mentioned before, it was awarded the jury prize at Cannes last year, uh, which is a huge achievement, um, especially given that Italian is not your first language. Are you wanting to continue to make films in Italian or are you, will you try something different for your next project? Um, I think... They'll definitely be linked. I'm not saying next projects will be Italian spoken, but the so the link with the producers, uh, the relationship that was installed there, it was really a beautiful collaboration. So the Italian production companies really, uh, uh, those guys are really close to us. So we'll definitely continue working with them. And um, I'm going to co-write with Felix now on a project, um, probably not co-direct at all. Um, uh, but he's working with them again. My, I don't know, we haven't casted it and it's still taking shape. But So it's difficult to say. It's, it's not, not something that we set out to do, but the, the love and the link will definitely, you know, be there and it'll pop up somewhere. Definitely. I mean, yeah. Well, Charlotte, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you all so much for your interest. I hope you loved the movie. (laughs) I did indeed. And The Eight Mountains is screening at the St. Ali Italian Film Festival, which starts this Thursday and it's going to be running until the 18th of October. For more information and session times, you can head to www.italianfilmfestival.com.au. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Um, I spoke with Charlotte Von der Mesh, uh, the co-director and co-writer of The Eight Mountains, which is playing here in Melbourne as part of the St. Ali Italian Film Festival, which kicks off this Thursday and it's going to be running until the 18th of October. If you'd like to get some tickets or just to get more information, you can head to italianfilmfestival.com.au. As I mentioned before, it is Radiothon here at Triple R. This is the time when we ask you, the listener, to show your support for the station. 
and subscribe and donate to keep us on air. The theme for this year is It's Educational. And many of us Primal Screen team are academics who write, uh, lecture, teach film, and we volunteer our time and ideas each week to make film, film history, film theory, uh, accessible and hopefully engaging. Dr Stuart Richards, you are one such academic uh, and you are former host of this show, yes. so it is a great honour to have you join me tonight. Um, oh, why do you think Radiothon uh, is sorry, Radiothon? Why do you think Triple <laughs> R is such an important thing for listeners to support and keep going? Well, I mean, I say this uh, all the time whenever it's Radiothon, but for me, uh, it is uh, you know the sound of Melbourne, um, and it's a way for you know, music, arts and culture um, to be more accessible um, and um, for both audiences and also for artists as a way for uh, those that are within arts and culture to, you know, find new audiences um, that, you know, wouldn't be viable through commercial radio. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, as an academic... Um, you know, we discussed this on the show during Radiothon. One thing I love about Primal Screen is that it is that intersection of all of these different avenues of the film industry, filmmakers, critics, film festival programmers and academics. Um, you know, and we test our ideas a lot with each other, which is really exciting. We absolutely do. And I know how hard it is. We get so focused on academic language being in our little ivory tower, but it is something, um, it's fantastic to be able to talk about our research, talk about the films that we love, that we've spent years um, analysing in yep. in just casual terms, in conversational way and hear from, hear from our listeners. So we love hearing from you. Um, if you would like to subscribe or donate, you can head to rrr.org.au. We will read out your name on air. Um, but Stewie, now you're, yes. you're now based in at the University of Adelaide, and you haven't University of South Australia. South Australia, sorry. <laughs> Potentially merging, created. not yet. <laughs> University of South Australia, sorry. Yes. Um, you have a new book in the pipeline about screen adaptations of Agatha Christie and Gothic horror. Now, yes. Christie is, of course, synonymous uh, with the murder mystery genre. Uh, she has about yep. 66 odd detective novels yeah Yeah. (laughs) and maybe like another dozen or so short stories Um, many of which involve the detectives uh Hercule Poirot Poirot. Thank you. And Miss Marple. Um, Miss Marple. I think most listeners will be familiar with Agatha Christie but for those who who are not how would how would you summarize her? Well, she is uh, one of the queens of crime. Uh, she uh, really capitalised on and popularised the murder mystery, uh, particularly during the golden age of detective fiction, um, you know, building on uh, that um, that path that, you know, um, you know, that characters like Sherlock Holmes, you know, uh, were famous for. Uh, she... I mean, during the golden age of detective fiction, there was a lot of unwritten rules around... Oh, no, they were actually written. Written rules around uh, the murder mystery in terms of what made a good puzzle. Uh, And Agatha Christie wrote a lot of really great novels that fit, you know, that... 
um, framework, but then she also very spectacularly broke those rules as well and constantly uh, challenging what makes a murder mystery. Mm. Uh, and she was very famous for, you know, this clue puzzle narrative where, you know, there are characters, but primarily what's driving that story are these clues which get left along the way. And it's a, meant to be a game between, you, you know, the, this character detective and uh, and the, the reader trying to mm. guess it before the detective does. Mm. I loved Agatha Christie, um, especially when I was younger. Um, I de- sort of devoured all of her books. Um, I'm curious, you know, I have heard you refer to this book project as a guilty pleasure. Yes. When did you first connect with Agatha Christie's work? I first read her work when I was at university, actually. Um, I remember I read a really depressing book uh, called Holding the Man, uh, if anyone's <laughs> yes. read it, and being absolutely devastated mm. and needing something to just cleanse the palate. Mm. Um, I mean, that's an amazing book, by the way, but it is also devastating. And one of my closest friends, Liz, um, recommended... I think it was And Then There Were None, which is still my favourite Agatha Christie book. Uh, and from there I just devoured them really, really quickly. Over mm. the course of a few years I think I read them all mm. just I... one by one. I love that you've selected a research project that is a guilty pleasure because there is so yep. much pleasure to be had in spending so much time with these texts, with analysing it, with creating this material. Mm. Um, now... Christie is quoted as saying her chief dislikes are crowds, loud noises, gramophones and cinemas. Now, despite that, there's at least 30 film adaptations of her work and countless TV episodes. Uh, What do you think it is about Christie's stories that make them such good fodder for screen adaptations? Well, I I think her narratives, it it sounds quite... uh, um offensive to say that they're basic. I mean, they're not basic, but the bare bones of the plots are quite straightforward, where there's a central mystery, there's a central trick usually with the puzzle, where it's like, well, what if this character was lying, then this means this and this means this. And those bare bones get translated really easily to various screen contexts. Mm. So... In England, you know, we have a lot of these ITV uh, series and a lot of BBC adaptations. They translated really well to radio in the early days and then to the stage uh, where so much of it was in the dialogue, Mm. which makes it easy uh, to translate to different Mm. screen contexts. But then they also get translated really well to different um, national contexts as well. So... And that was the you know the really fun part of writing this book, just going down these holes of all of these different uh, international adaptations. Where, and then there were none. You know, it's a Bollywood film um, where they have these dream sequences and dance about death. Um, <laughs> there's this really dark Russian version of it. Um, there's a really fun. Um, of ABC murders, there's a fun anime series. Really? Where there's like a talking, there's a talking duck. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's really weird, but these plots get translated really well to these different mm. national contexts. Uh, and that's really fascinating. And, and I find now 
more people probably come to Agatha Christie's work through, mm. you know, the screen than actually reading her mm. because of this kind of proliferation of adaptations. And you referred to one of her um, monikers before, the, the Queen of Crime, but she's also been referred to as the the Duchess of Death, the Mistress of Mystery. Um, tell us how gothic horror figures in her work. Well, I think um, it really challenges a lot of those earlier preconceptions of what Gothic was. Mm. Uh, so, you know, prior to the time she was writing, Gothic was more associated with the haunted castle and and Dracula and, you know, these monsters. But fundamentally the way I read Gothic is, uh, you know, the past coming back to haunt the present mm. and these these themes of the uncanny where the, the normal suddenly becomes terrifying and, you know, these these themes of isolation. And so much of her earlier work was that, you know, there were these characters trapped in houses or villages and, you know, the murder that happens uncovers all of these deep, mm. you know, tormented secrets of all of the characters. Mm. Um, but what was really interesting with her work was you know, there were a lot of supernatural themes touched on. So there were seances, there were witch-like characters. Um, you know, there's one um, book, The Pale Horse, which involves supposed witches. And Miss Marple says that if she was going to adapt Macbeth today, she would make the witches, you know, spinsters in a village, basically. And then mm. these t- characters, these similar characters appear in the book. Um but what happens whenever there are these themes of ghosts or witches in her murder mysteries w- would be the detective comes along, usually Poro or Miss Marple, and uses their rationality to say, well, supernatural or this spiritualism isn't real. Mm-hmm. Here's what's actually happening. Mm. And Agatha Christie in her autobiography even said that she didn't believe in the supernatural or spiritualism. Um, and we see that in her work. Um, Because the murder mystery is all about, um, you know, the rationality winning out, these neat conclusions towards the end where Mm. everything's answered. But um, with increasingly with a lot of more recent adaptations, I find they're really delving into, you know, but what if it's a bit darker? But what if it's a little bit more supernatural? So my book focuses uh, primarily on the recent BBC uh, series, which were all adapted from by Sarah Phelps. So and then there were none, where characters you know are trapped on an island and, um, and you know they see these kind of ghostly visions on the um, the island. And, and that book actually there's a lot of parallels to that narrative to the slasher film. Mm. You know, characters isolated, an ensemble of characters get killed off by one by one. The killer's one of them. You know, they've all got a guilty past. Um, and then in a book like Pale Horse, we have witches who actually have power. Um, and so previously with her work and earlier adaptations, there are hints of kind of this like spooky uh, mood, but ultimately you know, usually it's that rationality winning out. Mm. Um, and you do get a lot of those musical and aesthetic cues associated with horror, even in like the 30s. 30 radio plays um but more recently there is that real embracing i think of gothic horror in Mm. contemporary adaptations 
Do you, um, during the research for your book, did your perception of Christy or, or her work shift or, or did the closer analysis kind of further consolidate that initial reading that you had? One thing that I found really interesting was nowadays I think there is the assumption that Agatha Christie is fundamentally about these cosy murders, you know, a quaint little British village and it's polite murder mm. and it's not too violent. Um, but I think those associations came through a lot of these ITV and BBC adaptations um, from like the 50s onwards, um, prim- and you know, principally in the 80s and 90s. And that's how I think we had these associations. But certainly, you know, there were a lot of radio broadcasts um, and the first adaptation of And Then There Were None, you know, they were really creepy. Um, and she was about exploring these really dark themes of death. Mm. Uh, and, I mean, there are some books where kids get murdered, you know. Mm. Uh, and so I I think, you know, her, her actual work is not as quaint mm. as what we now associate her with. That's so fascinating to hear. I think um, I do think that that often she's she's – she does get boxed in like mm, that. Her work yeah. does get boxed in. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. Um, later tonight, we're going to be reviewing the latest film adaptation of Agatha Christie with A Haunting in Venice, which is directed by Kenneth Branagh. It's in cinemas now. Um, now, at the time of Christie's death in 1976, she was the best-selling novelist in history, which is just wild. And the fact that we're still adapting her work to the mm. screen today speaks so much of her popularity. Um, why do you think that these stories remain relevant today? Because they're good mysteries. Mm. I, I think with a lot of crime fiction today, I mean, there are certainly a lot of great crime novelists today. I mean, the Thursday Murder Club, um, a lot of Anne Cleves' work, you know, she did Shetland and the Vera series. Um, and there's a really great, I forget the Australian author who recently wrote, um, everyone in my family has killed someone. Um, you know, there are really great crime novelists today. Mm. Um, but I think fundamentally what Christie gets right is that there's that puzzle element driving the reader mm. uh, and characterization is great and why did people do it is good but fundamentally a lot of people are interested in that puzzle mm. uh, and it's that satisfaction you get at the end of a murder mystery when it all neatly ties up and you know there are clues you spotted but then there's some clues you didn't get mm. uh, and it's you know challenges the viewer or the reader mm. well In just a moment, we're going to be talking about the latest adaptation, uh, A Haunting in Venice. Uh, So, I I know your book isn't coming out until next year. Um, Do we? um, I know that you've got a fantastic piece in the conversation about this film. Um, So, please don't go go out and rush out and read that before our review. Um, (laughs) But you can check it out on the conversation. Um, A Haunting of Venice, a gothic horror supernatural. Agatha Christie murder, murder mystery, which all becomes quite camp. Um, yes. What an amazing lineup of prizes that you can win during Radiothon if you subscribe or donate. Um, and we've already got some lovely people who have done just that. Um, shout out to Lily and Iris, who are dogs, and Fergus the cat. Curtis, Curtis? <laughs> from Croydon South, who are renewing to On the Blower. They say, thank you for the great radio. Can't 
bear to listen to anything else. Me neither. Uh, we also have Monique Silk from Fairfield, who is renewing to radiotherapy. And Kaz Abel from St Kilda East, who is renewing to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for those subscriptions. Um, it really does keep us on air and um, keep the show educational, which is our theme for tonight. Now, earlier tonight, we discussed... Oh, sorry, just to mention, that was, of course, Martin Frawley with Heart in Hand. Um, Stewie, earlier tonight, we discussed uh, the many screen adaptations of Agatha Christie's novels, uh, which is the subject of your upcoming book. Uh, It is now time, however, for us to review the latest adaptation of Christie's work, A Haunting in Venice. Uh, so Branagh has directed the last three films in this yes. this Poirot uh, trilogy. Um, we've got 2017's uh, Murder on the Orient Express, last year's Death on the Nile, and now A Haunting in Venice. We mentioned before that you have reviewed this for the conversation, Stewie. Yeah. Um, what you know, each of the each of these books is based on the figure. Uh, the, you know, um, the main character, Hercule Poirot, but they are kind of standalone novels, right? In their own, yes. in their own right. So is it necessary to have seen these earlier film adaptations? No. Okay. Um, actually, I mean, not really, but there are a few references to, um, you know, invented character development for Poirot uh, from Death on the Nile. Um, so so there, it adds a bit of backstory you know, which plays into certain key moments. But, you, you know, you don't really have to have no. seen the earlier ones. Okay. No. I feel like we, we might get a few messages through being like, hang on, there there isn't a, a novel called A Haunting in Venice. It is actually no. based on um, her 1969 novel Halloween yep. Party um, and they've changed the location from UK to Venice. So just for people at home who are <laughs> Agatha I mean, Christie diehards. <laughs> I mean, to I mean, to, they've changed a lot. Like yes. it, they may as well have just created an entirely new film. I would say, and, and, that, and that is happening. So we have um, you know, a lot of uh, what's her uh, Hannah, someone I forget her name, but there's a contemporary writer that is continuing the Poirot series now. Really? So, yeah, and they're quite good. Okay. So I don't necessarily think that they needed to say it was based on Halloween Party. In the original book, we get, you know, there's this house party in a, in a village and the little girl says that, you know, she's once witnessed a murder, but she only realised it was a murder much later mm. uh, and no one believes her. And then, you know, she's later found dead. And uh, the character Ariadne Oliver, who plays Tina, who's played by Tina Fey in the film, calls Poirot up and then Poirot goes to this village and spends a lot of time, you know, going back into the backstory of the village and all of these suspicious deaths. You know, which one did the girl see? Mm. Uh, and that is not the plot <laughs> of A Haunting of Venice at all. Uh, there's no seance uh, in the original book. Uh, so it's very, very different. That is like the, at least for the trailer, that is the main focus. So it's really interesting yes. to hear how much it has um, diverted from from the original. Um I mentioned before those those earlier two films. Um, I heard really good things about Murder on the Orient Express, but I did think that Death on the Nile was kind of universally panned. What's your own feeling on those two earlier films? So going into A Haunting in Venice, my expectations were six feet under because <laughs> I had such 
a visceral hatred of the earlier two films, both of them. I thought, you know, so much of the, like, discourse around these films, uh, how much Kenneth Branagh loves Agatha Christie, but for me, I just, like, I don't see it Mm. because one thing that's so great about those two books is that it's about the puzzle more than anything else. It is about, you know, Murder on the Orient Express. It's about these interviews with these suspects one by one and you piece together the backstory through those Mm. interviews. And Death on the Nile is all about, you know, it's almost this theatrical blocking on the boat. Who was where, when, who's lying? And, you know, in the book, there's an actual map of the boat. Um, And so you can, you know, whose rooms are where. And Kenneth Branagh, really kind of just craps all over that nuance in his films and spends a lot of the time on Poro himself, which, you know, is an interesting aspect of something I I explore in the book where a lot of these contemporary, you know, um, embracings of the Gothic are used to, you you know, explore the psyche or the deteriorating psyche of the detective. Mm. So in ABC Murders, for instance, the Perot played by John Malkovich uh, is, you know, a broken man. And we see that, uh, especially in A Haunting in Venice, where uh, Perot, you know, he begins the film saying that I don't believe in ghosts. Uh, There's nothing, you know, accurate about mediums they're all frauds and then as the film goes on you know he has these visions and he the house is haunted and it is about him questioning his own ability um you know and but once again it's all about pro mm. so it's not about the mystery and it's not about the puzzle and it's criminal when you have such great casts yeah, in can, these films can we just talk about the cast just briefly i do want to get yeah. back to what you're saying before about this broken man um yep. story um michelle yo you mentioned before as mrs reynolds yep. um jamie dornan as dr leslie ferrier tina fey um yep. really interesting having her cast yes. there um, there's so many. It's it's kind yeah. of. Um, I mean, each of the films in this this series. I know they're not exactly a series, but the Poirot yeah. series, as, as imagined by Branner, are yeah. really stacked casts. But, but that's not necessarily a new thing, right? No. So the 1974 murder on the Orient Express. I'll just read out the cast of that one: Lauren Bacall, uh, Ingrid Bergman, Jacqueline Bissett, Sean Connery. <laughs> Albert Finney as Pro, wow. John Gielgud, <laughs> Anthony Perkins, <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave, um, a, a Rachel Roberts as well. So like that is so insane. It, <laughs> it, and, and that version is a lot better. Um, yes, but, yes. Um, but which is one thing that's really frustrating about these versions, mm. where you have such a good cast, and you know the characters that is written for them are so juicy, mm. and you don't really kind of lean into it I mm. find I mean Kelly Riley she's a great actor right just this character there's just nothing it's almost like she's a Catherine Tate character in a way with mm. how she's performing it's it's very weird mm. um but going into it with very little expectations and just kind of enjoying the camp gothic because it's so over the top it's a dark and stormy night it's all by candlelight <laughs> There are kind of like there are children singing off off screen, um, you know. There's um, there's no light basically, so there's like big shadows against the wall, and there are some really great uh, moments where 
you know, this big Venetian palazzo and, you know, characters are dwarfed by like these really interesting, like low angles going upstairs and, Mm. um, or there's, you know, like a silhouetted room, but there's, you know, a doorway in the background of the shot and there's a character just kind of standing there. So they have a lot of fun in the whole Gothic Mm. aspect. Um, And so in that sense, it's fun. Isn't Branner's brand basically camp, like theatre camp? It's it, kind of, it is. It's his vibe. It is over. It is over the top. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and Agatha Christie is over the top as well, right? It's all mm. about stereotypes. Yeah, her, her stories. So it does work. You touched upon before a central thread of a haunting in Venice is this kind of framing of of Poirot as as kind of a a broken man. I wonder yeah. where this film kind of is situated because I feel like we've seen the broken man as a bit of a trend this year in cinema. I think about uh, Indiana Jones, this idea of Harrison Ford kind of at the end of his career, Mm. Um, even with Mission Impossible, like all these big blockbusters, this idea of a man in crisis, particularly an older man, um, I think it's just really interesting that this has come up so much this year. Um, you know, don't have any. I'm not sure exactly <laughs> where to go with that, but I I do think that there's there's something of a a, a trend this year in cinema. Mm. Um, perhaps in reaction to some of the progress made, um, on some of the backlash with with feminism. Who knows? Yep. Perhaps also just maybe more of a focus on the older man on screen. Um, and mm. Poirot definitely fits into that. Um. What do you think uh, the responses so far? Because I've heard some quite negative reviews, but do you think that, yeah, we're going to see what's your reading on it? Um, I think um, the general vibe is that um, it's the strongest one so far of the trilogy. Um, I mean, it's not saying much. (laughs) Um, I, I think the issue with something like Agatha Christie is that it's not just dealing with fans of her books, but fans that are that they love the adaptations particularly mm. the tv adaptations so if you go to any so, social media um page from about agatha christie and it's about this film or any kenneth branner films you'll get a hundred comments of people saying but david sachet is better right mm. and so they have to compete with this cultural memory of david sachet who's perfect mm. as poro and so that's why I think it's interesting where we get these other versions of him, like John Malkovich is so different, as well as Kenneth Branagh. And sometimes it works, but mm. sometimes it doesn't. And mm. so I think that is something that is just really tricky for them to compete with. Um, and I don't think they can compete mm. when it's done so well by David Suchet. Uh, so, which is interesting where this film goes into such a direction of gothic horror. Yes. Now, uh, for listeners who would like to see the earlier films, I did notice that both Murder on the Orient Express, which is the 2017 film, and Death on the Nile from last year are both available to stream on Disney+, Plus, or you can buy them on Apple TV. However, A Haunting in Venice, which is the latest excursion for Branagh as Poirot, is in cinemas now, um, if you'd like to check it out. And Stewie... If um, I feel like you weren't a massive fan of A Haunting in Venice, what yeah. would you recommend out of the Agatha Christie screen adaptations, what would you recommend that listeners check out instead? Um, I would recommend the 1974 um, version of a, a Murder on the Orient Express. I mean, that cast is incredible. 
Um, I would also recommend uh, the BBC adaptation of um, uh, And Then There Were None. Um, that's fantastic. It's actually one of the few versions of that story that's true to the book um, because Agatha Christie adapted it to the stage play and it's a happier ending. And so all of these adaptations of it are a happy ending, but this series is true to the very dark ending of the original. Um, mm. So those two, I think, are fantastic. Well, A Haunting in Venice is screening at all major and local cinemas. Uh, you've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Stewie Richards and myself, Flick Ford. On tonight's show, we spoke with Charlotte von der Mersch, the co-director and co-writer of The Eight Mountains, which is playing now, um, playing, sorry, this Thursday, from this Thursday at St. Ali's Italian Film Festival. Um, head to italianfilmfestival.com.au for more info. We also heard about Stewie's upcoming book on screen adaptations of Agatha Christie's novels and how gothic horror figures in her work. And finally, we wrapped up the hour with our review of the latest Agatha Christie film adaptation, A Haunting in Venice, uh, which is playing at all major and local cinemas. Uh, as always, you can listen back to tonight's episode on the Triple R website, rrr.org.au, or subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. And while you're there, maybe think about subscribing, renewing your subscription, or donating. Uh, Stewie, thank you so much for joining me tonight. No, thank you. Getting to talk about Agatha Christie and having people listen is a guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 